Hey everyone, Mel here again with another episode of the Weekly Watch. This week I'm going to be talking about The Accountant, the new Ben Affleck film, and Nocturnal Animals, the new film with Amy Adams that isn't Arrival. Arrival, I will watch that next week. But first, as always, let's have a quick chat about TV stuff. Now, as has been the case in the last few weeks, my TV highlights have been The Walking Dead and Westworld. This is probably going to be the first week where Pitch aired, where I'm not talking about Pitch, even though I'm just mentioning it now. Uh, not much really to talk about in this, this episode. It was a cool episode, but I really want to dig into Westworld this week. It was a fantastic episode that we had. It basically, just like every week, you know, it was it was blowing my mind. I mean, one, one of the things is we, we found out who was smuggling out data out of Westworld, or who's trying to smuggle out data out of Westworld. It's Teresa. You know, I, I don't really, I, I, I didn't really hazard much of a guess as to who it was. Um, but for whatever reason, I, I wasn't really thinking that it'd be Teresa, you know, considering how high up she's in the hierarchy. Even though, I mean, obviously that makes perfect sense. She has access to a lot of stuff. Why is she trying to smuggle out data? And actually, what kind of data is it that she's trying to smuggle out? You know, is, is she working, you know, maybe for the man in black? Because um, my theory is that... I mean, a lot of people have the theory that he's William, just older, you know, the, the two timeline things are 30 years apart, and that he has taken over the company that Logan was working for or, or owned, and that he actually owns Westworld or or is is a partial owner, and he is definitely someone with a lot of influence. He might be a board member or something. So I'm wondering if he, uh, sorry, if Teresa is working for him. He, he clearly has an animosity with Ford, uh, they don't like each other, they don't seem to, you know, like, look, see eye to eye. And some, somehow I, I have this whole thing in my head where I think that Westworld was taken over 30 years ago, probably by the company that Logan represents. And they've taken Westworld in a direction that Ford, as the original creator, just does not, does not agree with. And he is kind of like doing his own thing, you know, how he was, he had set a certain area apart just to do his own thing. You know, has this ginormous planet killer thingamajiggy, you know, the terraformer, um, dig up everything and, and create something new. And I was, I was just wondering if he is doing that without, you know, the company's consent, without anyone else actually knowing what he's up to and I'm wondering if Teresa is supposed to be spying on him, keeping an eye on him and, and keeping a tab on what he's actually doing if he is working in whichever uh, trajectory the company actually wants to take the theme park. So I'm, I'm not entirely sure, we've not really found out who she's working for, who she's getting the data for, but I'm kind of hoping that she's sort of, because she had this scene with Ford where he was inviting her to dinner or whatever it was and he sat her down in the exact same chair that she sat in when she was a little kid and she came to Westworld for the first time. So th there was definitely a power play there. So I'm wondering if he kind of knows that she spies on him and she she's his sort of overseer or watchdog and he obviously doesn't like it. So I'm, I'm hoping we're going to find out more in, uh, to, to that regard. I mean, obviously we're going to find out who she's spying for. But 
it, it kind of when, when we found that out it sort of worked with the theory that I've been hazarding a guess at and I hope that Teresa is his monitor and I hope that that kind of explains the animosity between the man in black and Ford it's like they, they took over Westworld they took over the park because they had money problems 30 years ago but Ford hasn't actually told them the secrets of the park and that drives the man in black crazy and I think it drives him crazy because he was there 30 years ago when whatever happened with Arnold happened and ever since then or maybe even before then if, if the man in black actually is William he's been in the other timeline he's working with Dolores and there Dolores is trying to find a maze so I think William's joining her and that is a quest that this guy has now had for 30 years and Ford is trying to keep that from him because hell knows what is in the middle of the maze you know what once you've beaten the maze well what are you gonna find that is definitely something that Ford doesn't want to share and it's got something to do with Arnold so I do hope that that all gels together and while we have Dolores in like 30 years ago trying to find the maze and listen to Arnold's voice and becoming aware and breaking out of her loop and breaking out of her programming in 30 years later in the second timeline we have these uh, uh, someone similar it's it's Maeve and she is <laughs> she's turning into in, in, into like a terminator or something she is she, she's fighting the system from within. You know, I really got goosebumps when she told the butchers to change her uh, her programming, her parameters. I don't quite understand why they have access to that all of a sudden, because um, I think the previous episode, in mean, one of the previous episodes, we found out that they are the lowest of the low in the hierarchy, and the behavior programmers or programs in general are way higher up. So I'm not sure why they would have access to something like this. But the, the entire thing was a bit, it was a bit forced. You know, she, she goes on this tour, she forces um, one, of the, one of the guys, I can't remember his name, the Asian dude, he's really cool. She kind of makes him take her on a tour through the entire, uh, entire central hub. And she sees, she basically witnesses creation. You know, she, she, she sees the creators and, and how they create hosts like her and the animals and how they how everything is programmed and how they are tested for their behaviors and and you basically see that all you think that is your life and that is open and flexible and yours to do as you please is actually just a few parameters in your programming and it's someone else basically telling you what to do you have no free choice whatsoever I mean when she looks at a tablet and and she's saying what she's saying and she can see on the tablet this is exactly what she's saying and she's like this is ridiculous and it, it keeps happening and keeps happening and she's just oh my god this little device here knows exactly how I will respond and what I'm saying and what I'm thinking it's kind of like you you walk into if you believe in God you walk into God's creation to into his creation uh, lab and you see how he creates a planet or creates a human or a monkey or whatever and you're just like mind fucking blown you know um, it was really that was a really fantastic little sequence I, I kind of you know I really forgave that it felt really forced that she managed to get the Asian dude to just have her take a look at everything 
why he even has access to some of these higher levels because he's only a butcher. I don't understand. The entire thing felt really flawed from the get-go um, as to how she gets about and to how she how she goes about finding out all of these things. But because it was such a fantastic sequence, I kind of forgave that it felt a bit like, well, we need her to have this journey. How are we going to enable her to have this journey? I will do it like this. No one's really going to care that that doesn't make any sense. And it's kind of true. We, we all go, oh, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. But do you remember how fucking cool the sequence was? And yeah, it was cool. I don't get why they help her, why they don't just go like, um, this host is malfunctioning. Um, them worrying about their jobs, that makes no sense, because clearly them sh uh, showing someone, you know, showing the host not working must have more of an impact than two butchers going like, oh, um, you might go and lose your job. So that, that, that really didn't make a lot of sense to me. But what I love about this whole Maeve thing, other than Naomi Harris being fucking fantastic, is that to me it's like in, in the past we have Dolores who broke out of her loop, who became aware, who you know had this whole journey with the maze and we obviously don't re we, we don't know yet what the end result of that was but like I said last week I think um, she has something to do with Arnold and probably his disappearance apparently Arnold committed suicide which I still don't believe somehow I'm thinking it's like maybe he suicided himself but he didn't actually kill himself. What if he just uploaded his consciousness into, I don't know, like the matrix or the main computer of the central hub or, or the main computing unit of the entire world of Westworld or, you know, something like that. I still think that he's still around. He might just not be in the body of a human person. And that has something to do with Dolores. And then obviously, you know, she's been shut down and scrubbed and put back into circulation for a reason. They didn't just get rid of her, they didn't terminate her and throw her in the trash bin. So there is something about her that's really important. And now 30 years later, in our second timeline, we've got Maeve, who is now becoming self-aware, breaking out of her loop. And it, I, I kind of want her to, I mean, she, she's so self-aware now and she got the butchers to like up her, um, I can't remember what they called it, but it's, it's like the intelligence sort of, up her intelligence so that she is now smarter than a human being. She's now smarter than her creator. It's, it's kind of like this whole Battlestar Galactica Cylon thing. It's like our creations have outsmarted us and, and have now started creating on their own. And I'm, I'm kind of hoping that um, Maeve sort of finds out that Dolores is special in the same way and she finds her and reactivates her her old aware self from 30 years ago and together they're you know they're gonna wreak havoc and and uh, turn Westworld upside down and and just make make um, make everything happen that's kind of what I'm hoping for I mean I, th I think that would be really kick-ass if they just you know they work together and they just change shit I think that would be fantastic one of the other things that I thought was really cool is that young boy that we've seen a few times now who only well i wanted to say who only interacts with uh, ford but that's actually not true i think he had interaction with someone else was it with the man in black i can't remember anymore but it was definitely someone else uh, oh and and bernard but we found out who that little boy is and he's from some sort of um a special little section in the park that's been sectioned off 
and it's something that Arnold created like decades ago and it's basically the only well seemingly the only happy moment in Ford's life and Arnold created it for him as a reminder and you know as, as a gift um, which to me in the first instance I was like so they were really good friends those two I mean he created this he created this boy that the little boy is Ford when he was younger and he created was it a brother or a sister I think it was a sister and the parents and the family dog and it's, it's really cute and I was like wow he's created all of that for Ford and then through the decades Ford's made adjustments and stuff but that was kind of like his little section of solace in Westworld that only he knew about these five hosts they are not linked up to the main hub they are not controlled or governed by anything it sounds like they're very autonomous they, they, they run on their own little section on their own little loop and only Ford knew about it by the looks of it and Bernard stumbles upon it that was really fantastic just to just to see that and then at the end of the episode when the when the little boy um, says that he killed the dog because the dog was a killer and he couldn't have the dog harm anyone or anything else and so he had to put him down and that was I, w I was wondering like, is this something that the host did or is this something that actually really happened in Ford's past so we don't really know that much about Ford and, and I was just like why is this the only the only um, happy memory that he seemingly has so did he have a horrible childhood? Apparently he was saying that his dad was, I think he was a drunk and he had anger issues or something like that. So it sounds like he didn't have a happy childhood. So I'm wondering why he goes back there to relive all of that. I mean, okay, it's his one happy moment, but I wonder if he did something to his own family and he wants to remember them they were before he did to them whatever he did to them so we didn't really find much out in in that regard but just that this section is there in westworld and then only ford knows about it was really really interesting i i really like that it's like you find out more about his background and i think a lot of that will come out once we find out what actually happened 30 years ago so what else happened we had new lady show up um, in the central hub her name's Miss Hale and as soon as she's introduced you know she's just wearing like a skimpy bikini outfit because she's in that Mesa bar which is a new location that was introduced in the last episode which looks really really cool it's like if you're on holiday anywhere this is where you want to go it looks really nice and sunny and almost tropical but it's not really tropical but I was like this is where I want to be and the arrogant programmer is there you know the the architect and he's trying to hit on her and of course that's going to come back to haunt him in the ass. We later find out, find out that Miss Hale is actually an overseer of sorts from the board, board of directors or something of Westworld. And when that came out, I was like, now we have a manifestation of the board. Because I've like for so many episodes, I've been thinking about the, the board of directors and, and that they are probably not agreeing with Ford, there's something going on there and now we actually have a personification of that um, entity of, of people and we don't really find out why she's there other than to make a few changes but I kind of hope that Ford somehow managed to piss off the board or something and now they're sending one of the executives to make sure that he stays in line and 
stays the course that's been agreed for Westworld because I think because apparently Westworld 30 years ago was bought up and he was the, one of the original creators with Arnold that he's not seeing eye to eye with the new owners and that there are several layers to Westworld and then at the very 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 bottom in the darkest secrets there's a Ford level and then there's an Arnold level and no one really knows about that because this is not something that they would have talked about and I think that's also where the man in black comes in because I do think that he is kind of part of that board as well and that's why he's after the maze he wants to find out the darkest secrets about Westworld because he feels that Ford is holding out on him and I think that's why they're going head to head on that man, uh, the, the man in black and Teddy they're still on their on their journey to find the maze not really much happened there um, this week. It was a bit weird. I mean, they they ran into some um, Union troops, and then it just got a bit bonkers. And Teddy just Gatling gunned everybody, and I was like, "What's going on?" So he's turned into quite a ruthless person, almost like the Man in Black, just because he's after this Wyatt guy. So he basically gunned down an entire camp of Union soldiers. So that was a bit much. But I I'm wondering. If there's a connection between these two, you know, Teddy and the man in black. I mean, Teddy obviously being a host, but it's just that there's... The man in black mentioned that he needs Teddy, which is why he kept him alive with like this, this transfusion when he, you know, gutted that Mexican host like a pig and, and a lot of other things. And I was just like, there's something there. Like, he's a key player. And then in, in the past, we also had... We also had uh, William and Dolores trying to find the maze, and I think this is, it's all kind of like coming together. Like Maeve becoming, becoming conscious, and she, she's like, I've unplugged from the Matrix, like she's totally woke now. She's, she, she's a new deus ex machina now that the butchers have overcome her programming, and, she, and she's basically been unleashed. So, it, it's like she's Skynet, but we don't know whether she's good or bad yet, so... It's going to be really interesting to see what's going to happen next. I mean, the entire episode was just chock full of things. And the the most amazing thing was just when, when Maeve was walking through that central hub, seeing all of these parts of creation. It's like you're there at the Big Bang or something. It's just mind-blowing. It must be really mind-blowing. And then she sees herself, or some of her memories, she sees them in, a, uh, in an ad, in a PR campaign. Westworld and she's like well how did they have my memories and it's it's just just trying to think about what that person well the host um, is going through when when it has that kind of information supply like that that must short-circuit your your CPU or something it was absolutely fantastic I mean it's just getting better the more we find out about the show and about Westworld and also the stuff that happens outside of Westworld a lot more external influences are coming into Westworld and into the show changing everything and, and, and adding more and more layers to it and it's just so absolutely fascinating the stuff that happens in there I really do hope that that they're gonna be renewed for a second season apparently the ratings are declining which I don't understand because it's it's a brilliant show please watch it please support it um, I, I do hope you watch it I do hope you you like it I just love things like that, like, like Lost and, and a lot of other things where 
you can have your own theories and you're like, oh, I think this is going to happen. And you talk to someone and they mention something to you. And you go, oh, yeah, you're right. I forgot about that. Or I never even noticed that. Like when I was talking to my mate after um, while we were watching that this latest episode, she hadn't even realized that there were two separate logos showing up in, in the show. And she was like, oh, I had no idea. I was like, yeah, it's crazy. I knew that it looked different, but then I'd seen the screen caps of the different logos. And she was like, oh, wow. I, was like, I know, right? Mind-blowing. Um, it's just, it's fantastic. I love this show. It's, I think at the moment, it's, <laughs> it's really my favorite favorite show on TV right now. Like every week. I mean, I'm a huge Walking Dead fan and I was so excited for the seventh season and who Negan killed and all of that stuff. And I love Jeffrey Dean Morgan. But the Walking Dead has nothing on Westworld at the moment. It's just driving me bonkers. I can't wait for the next episode. I'm so excited for it. And I do hope they do get renewed. Seriously, whoever's in charge of that, make sure that you renew Westworld. Fuck the ratings. Seriously, it breaks Twitter every time it airs. So just bloody renew it. And since I've just mentioned The Walking Dead, let's just have a quick chat about The Walking Dead this week. Um, it's it's very episodic what happens. I mean, that's funny when you talk about TV because they are episodes. But we had this whole episode where we find out, you know, who dies. Like the opener, you know, who Negan killed. And then we had Carol and King Ezekiel. And now we had Daryl hanging out with Negan's boys. And... Every episode is, is self-contained within itself, which I think, I'm, I'm not sure if that's new to The Walking Dead, but it's definitely something that I don't usually associate with The Walking Dead, where it jumps from one thing to the next to the next. I kind of like it, but it also means that if, it's, if the episode is about um, a person or a character that you don't really care about, then you're probably going to be a bit like, yeah, don't really care. You know, it's like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> but I love Daryl and I love Negan. Can't really say I like Dwight, but you know, I like to hate him. He's an asshole. But what I really loved about this episode, we found out more about Dwight as well. So this episode was a big torture episode, basically. I mean, Negan didn't take Daryl because he wanted to serve him coffee, tea and biscuits or whatever. Um, so. It's kind of Daryl versus Negan, but in the form of Dwight. Because Negan like, doesn't do his own dirty work, does he? He's way too cool and charismatic and charming for that. So, one of the things that I really loved is we found out that Negan's married. I'm doing air quotes here, <laughs> married. Because we don't actually know what that means. That probably just means that he, he's fucking this particular lady and he... Presumably, he's not fucking anyone else. But whether there was a ceremony and they were till death do his part, probably not, but they say married. So, Negan's married. And interestingly, he's married to Dwight's wife. Because she's hot. So, Dwight and his wife and some other people showed up at Negan's doorstep. And Negan was like, why are you hot? And then they did something and basically he was going to kill Dwight. And the only way that he was not going to kill Dwight was if Dwight's wife was going to marry Negan. So her being a really nice lady, she was like, of course, I'll marry you. Just don't kill my husband, please. So yeah, he married Dwight's wife. That should make any interaction between these characters really, really awkward. 
And as soon as we find out about this dynamic, it just changes everything. So Dwight's not just the underling who does Negan's bidding, he's the underling who's basically spat on and pissed on every time Negan just fucking looks at him. It's like, mate, I got your wife. I'm fucking your wife every night. How you doing? You know, with, with this fucking smile that Negan has. And it was just, I, I kind of felt sorry for Dwight and I've never really felt sorry for Dwight before. And they, they kind of have a hard time stealing stealing away some moments in, in the corridor, just like being able to just have a chat with each other. Because obviously Negan is very, well, I don't know if he's jealous, but he definitely is possessive. So he wouldn't want to get the impression that Dwight is hitting on his wife or something. But yeah, I thought it was really interesting to find out. It's like, oh yeah, I'll take your wife, that's fine. Trade, you know, it's we, we trade goods for goods. And Negan is such a twat, he really likes reminding Dwight that he's taken his wife. So he he sort of, I'm not sure if it's just a coincidence, but what the hell of a weird coincidence that would be. You know, Negan walks into the doctor's office because of, I think something Daryl related, I can't remember. And his ex now ex-wife, is, is there. And there's a pregnancy test, <laughs> conveniently very visible on the table. And it's just things like that where you're like, Mm, awkward. At first you don't really think about it, it's like, yeah, whatever. And then 10 minutes later you find out that that used to be his wife, and it's like, mm, for fuck's sake, <laughs> that's really fucking awkward. The main thing of the episode is that we have Daryl living in Negan's camp, not really comfortably. He's been stripped naked into a dark cell, he's being fed dog meat sandwiches, which for whatever reason people seem to be implying is a bad thing. You know, he's being fed a, a dog meat sandwich, I assume, once a day. And during the apocalypse, he gets meat. You know, it doesn't sound nice, dog meat, but actually dog meat and dog food and cat food is actually really good quality because otherwise these animals wouldn't eat it. They're way more fussy eaters than we humans are. So people were like, oh my god, he's feeding him dog meat. It's like, that's not a bad thing. I mean, of course, I would much rather have like a ham and cheese sandwich, but you know, you can't be picky, it's the apocalypse. So anyway, Daryl gets fed those dog meat sandwiches while the entire time being tortured by loud music. And I mean loud shitty music. I'm not talking techno music because that would be even worse, but still, loud shitty music all the fucking time. Because Negan wants to break him. And every now and then they have a bit of a check-in as like, well, so who are you? And Negan wants Daryl to say, I'm Negan, because everyone around Negan goes, I'm Negan. I, I don't really get it. It's, it's like weird. And at the end of the episode, he's still not broken, despite everything that happens to him. He still goes, I'm Daryl. Because Daryl's awesome. And Negan knows that. <laughs> you can just tell that Negan's really fascinated by Daryl. Which is why he lets him, you know, get away with things he wouldn't usually get let people get away with. They they have a really, really disturbing relationship. But it's really interesting to watch. To see those two square off against each other. I mean, Negan clearly having the upper hand. But you can see that he, he was really close to, like, bashing his skull in with Lucille. But he held back because there's something about Daryl that he likes. So that fascinates him. So instead he had his goons kick the shit out of Daryl, which didn't kill him. So that, it was it was a really interesting episode, but it was more of a, like a power play. 
Um, I love, you know, Norman Reedus. A lot of people love Norman Reedus. But I really love Jeffrey Dean Morgan. And he is so fucking creepy as Negan. I mean, I've seen this guy in so many shows. And I love this guy. He's charming. But here he's charming in such a creepy, deadly way. I'm, I'm just... I, I don't think I'll ever look at him in the same way. I'm just like, wow, mate, you've got... You've got a layer there that really fucking disturbs me. Not just scares me, but disturbs me. And I love it. Um, we fa also found out how Negan kind of makes his makes his camp work, which I thought was really interesting. Um, they have this whole three-tier system. You can either be part of the fence, which means you're dead and you, your head is on a pike somewhere. Or you're a zombie and that's how you keep the, the camp safe. Or you work the point system which is apparently not a good idea because any supplies are high in points and any work you do is low in points so it's really shit or you basically are just part of his group and do whatever he tells you to do which is as he says it there's only one option the last one otherwise you're fucked and of course daryl doesn't take either he's like i'm daryl <laughs> it's kind of like Matt damon um so we we're not entirely sure what was gonna happen next um, with those two, I assume Negan will try, keep trying to break Daryl. Daryl will try to resist. We'll see how, how far they go and, and who's, well, can't even say who's stronger because obviously Negan's not being tortured, but you know what I mean. It's going to be really interesting to see those two square off against each other. I do hope that in the next episode, I haven't seen the preview yet, um, but I do hope we go back to, uh, oh no, I'm lying. Yes, I did see the preview. We are back in Alexandria and I think Negan shows up. And Rick has this whole thing, he's like, man, I'm no longer in charge, and he has this whole oh, crying thing. Um, should be good. I want to see Maggie again, because she, she obviously, she wants revenge. You know, he killed her husband, the, the, the father of her child. And the, the one thing that really still bothers me is, like, everyone was on this, on this camping trip, because Maggie was having problems with the baby. But once Negan got hold of them, everyone forgot about the baby. Nothing was wrong with the baby anymore. Maggie was just sitting there on the ground for ages while Negan was doing his monologue and bashing people's skulls in and nothing happened but while she was on the fucking ban there was problems with the pregnancy all the fucking time so it's like what the shock just stopped it? The baby knew to shut its fucking mouth and not cause any issues? It's like what the hell? The entire thing just happened because Maggie had problems with pregnancy and now they're all gone. It makes no fucking sense, so I do hope that we find something out about that. Maybe the baby died. Does it turn into a zombie in her belly and then claw itself out? Bite, her, bite its mother from the inside and turn into a zombie? I have no idea. Zombie baby questions. I definitely have those. So I can't wait to see that. I just want to see, see the group again because we haven't seen them um, in two episodes now. So I, I really, really need to catch up with those guys. But overall, I thought it was a really cool episode. I really loved it, but I want to see, yeah, I want to see Maggie again, um, and and uh, Michonne and everyone else. So need to catch up, catch up with those guys. But definitely, Walking Dead, really good, really good season so far this time. But I am hooked on Westworld, and I need to know what the hell's going on there. All right, on on that note, I think I'm just gonna switch over to the movie side. All right, let's start with the accountant. I didn't really know what the film was about, even though I've seen a trailer like months and months and months ago. But basically the gist of it is, is like you've got Ben Affleck, he plays the lead role. He plays a guy called um, Christian Wolf, and he is 
He's been diagnosed with autism, a highly functioning form of autism now, um, from a really early age, uh, as, as a kid, as a young kid. And his dad is a US military officer and he doesn't really want his child to be in in a special needs home. I'm not sure if that's the right word, but in, in like a special treatment facility for autism or for for mental disorders. I'm not even sure if it's a mental disorder or just a disability. I'm, I'm not sure. But he, he basically doesn't want his son to do that because he feels if you have any kind of issue, you need to learn to overcome that. You need to learn to live with it. You need to iron out your, your deficiencies um, because the world's not gonna, you know, it's not gonna accommodate you just because you are, you know, whatever it is, if, if you're slightly backwards or if you have a lisp or if you can't talk or if you can't, if you can't read or whatever it is, you need to overcome it. You need to learn to live with your, with whoever you are. So what he does, he gets Chris and his brother Braxton to basically, he, he has them run through boot camps, he, he puts them through really harsh discipline. I mean, the dude's a, a military officer anyway. So they're, they're constantly moving. They lose their mother um, because she, she leaves them because she can't deal with Chris and his autism anymore because, you know, he, he has like these anger problems and he, he doesn't really know how to cope because the only person that is trying to deal with it is his dad and his dad basically has him go through like this, this disciplinary uh, stuff and martial arts and and military training he actually enters the military later on which i thought was really interesting so the mother leaves on a really young which is why they're really pissy with her especially the younger brother so um he is the older brother and braxton is the younger brother so he he has all kinds of like special skills which young boys usually don't have um, which is really cool so he's putting his skills to really good use especially his I, i'm not sure if i can call them autism skills he's, he's really good with math um and counting and and all that jazz so he's working as an accountant which is why the film is called the accountant um, and he works for you know a lot of criminal organizations because they I don't know how he actually got started in that. I think that film never really tells us, but he's really good at what he does and he has no allegiance problems. He he always goes client confidentiality and he works with like really highly prolific crime lords, like international crime syndicates. And he's you, you can always see him on like these surveillance photos that all these crime lords are on and he's just always there somewhere in the background or whatever. It's like, who is this dude? So he's just called the accountant because no one knows who he is. He has so many different aliases. No, no one really has any clue what's going on. So he, that, that's what he does as, as work. That's how he makes a lot of money. And he works with the voice. You know, you, you can't really say it's, it's a person. The entire film, while I was watching it, I wasn't even sure whether it's actually a person. It's a computer-generated voice that calls him on his phone. You find out near the end of the film who, who it is, which was quite a surprise for me, even though I was like, oh my God, I should have seen that. But it was really cool. That voice kind of gives him his assignments over the phone. And then he just goes and does his thing. And because he's always in, in like all these, all these photos with these crime lords and people that embezzle money and, and all that jazz, the Treasure Department, the US Treasure Department, um, 
sort of is, is trying to decipher who this dude is, who the accountant is. So we have J.K. Simmons, who works for the Treasury, uh, Treasury Department, and he's kind of on Chris's tail. He's trying to find out who he is, and he blackmails a promising young analyst at the Treasury, a Treasury Department, to make it her priority to find out who this accountant is. It's a bit of a really weird storyline in the film that doesn't make a lot of sense. It feels really tacked on. Even at the end of the film, after after the resolution and everything, I was really under the impression this whole thing with the treasure department, you, you don't need it. You really didn't need it. You could cut that out and the film would still be a decent film. And it is actually quite boring and forced and it, it diminishes the film in my opinion. Um, which is unfortunate because I love J.K. Simmons and any excuse to have J.K. Simmons in a film is, is a good one for me. But this one really, it felt tagged on. It was absolutely unnecessary and not needed. Um, but yeah, so that happens. So you have these guys trying to figure out who he is. And because the voice is always, you know, she always knows what's, what's going on. She is trying to throw those treasure guys off the trail. So she assigns a seemingly unsuspicious financial problem to Chris Wolf um, at a company called Living Robotics. And that's John Lithgow's company. I can't remember what his, what his character's name is. Um, but basically that assignment brings Chris together with Dana Cummins, who is um, played by um, Anna Kendrick. And she found out a financial discrepancy in the company which is why Chris is there to try and solve it. And while all of that happens, we find out that there's of course more going on behind the scenes. And then all of a sudden there's an assassin that shows up and the CFO of Living Robotics basically has to commit suicide to cover up for the financial discrepancy. But Chris can't let it go because he's a bit OCD and with his autism and stuff, he's like, I have this case and I need to finish it. Um, that's something that's been established earlier in the film when he was a kid, when he was making a puzzle. And he was missing a puzzle piece because it fell to the floor. And he's just like, I need to finish, I need to finish, I need to finish, I need to finish. Like he was really losing his shit. And he has that when he's, um, when he's an adult as well. He has to finish every single case. It doesn't matter whether they pay him for it. But he needs closure. He can't leave anything unfinished. Which is, of course, why he doesn't let it go. And, of course, this assignment, as unsuspicious as they thought it was going to be, is way more than anyone bargained for. That's pretty much what the film is about. And it doesn't sound like much. And it's, I mean, it's a decent, it's a decent flick. I, I was thoroughly entertained from A to Z, even though all the stuff with the treasure department, I would have cut it out. <laughs> even though, like I said, I love J.K. Simmons, but I would have cut it out. It was really boring and unnecessary and it didn't add anything to the film other than a very predictable and cliche um, plot point that I think was not good for the film at all. I really didn't like it. So when that resolution came out, I was like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. No way. That's bull. That's not a good part of it. But what's really good about The Accountant is Ben Affleck. And I'm not really a Ben Affleck fan. But he portrays someone living with autism really, really well. And he's fascinating. It's so fascinating to, to just watch him just go to work, go through life, just do all these, you know, menial things that you do day in and day out and how they are so different for someone 
who has to live with something like that, like, like autism. He made that in such a charming way. Um, and I think that's also thanks to the, the director and the, the way they shot it, the way they introduced Ben Affleck when, he, when he's first introduced when he's older, when he's an adult. It's, it's absolutely fantastic the way that works because he has, he's, he has autism, he's really good with numbers, but he's not very good with people. He's socially awkward, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't want to interact with other people. Of course you want to interact with other people. We all want to interact with other people. We all want to, to talk to someone and to connect with someone. So when we meet him, he makes his disability, autism, he makes it into his strength. I really like that about him. So the first time when we meet him, you have an elderly couple. They, they've come into his, his accountancy office um, for their tax return or something. They need help with their taxes. And they just, um, they talk about stuff and they clearly have money problems. And Ben Affleck is just like, oh, sorry, Chris, Chris is just like, talks about the lady's necklace. He notices it because it's a bit out of place. And she's like, oh, do you like it? And he's like, not particularly, because he, he doesn't really lie. You know, he's very, it's almost like he's got a bit of Asperger's as well. And he's, he's just very direct and he doesn't really understand how, what is proper to say. I, one of the uh, one of the things I really loved in the film is that everywhere he went, everywhere he lived, he had this um, I don't know what you call it. It's like a little code sheet of human faces, like smiley faces, and what they mean. Because to someone who has autism or I think Asperger's as well, there, there are a few. Um, they don't understand that when a person is frowning, what that means, when a person is smiling, what that means, when a person is crying, what that means. And so he has that, that little sheet, like, like a cheat sheet. It's like, this is what the face looks like, this is what it means. This is what the face looks like, oh, this is what it means, okay. So he has that everywhere, and I thought that was fantastic. So in that scene with the elderly couple, he's very direct. So it's like, do you like the necklace? It's like, um, yeah, not particularly. And she's like, uh, <clears throat> okay, fine. It's, it's really funny. And he was like, I'm, I'm sorry, did you make it? And she's like, yes, I make it. I make a few of those and I sell them at a fair. Oh, do you have an office? And like, no, I'd make that at home. Oh, in your living room. Hmm. So that's your office. So he's trying to point them in the right direction. And he's like, oh, how big's your office? And the husband's starting to catch on. And the husband says, like, some size. And Netflix, like, indicates bigger until the husband says a certain amount. And he's like, oh, that's good. Okay, yeah, we can work with that. So um, how do you order your material? Do you order it online? And the lady goes, no, I drive to the store. And it's, oh, so in your company car. And the lady goes, uh, no, not a company, just a truck. And, and Affleck goes, the company car until they finally realize what he's trying to do and it's, it's just so darling because he's so direct and almost a lot of people I think would think that he's very rude but he's really trying to help these guys and he does it in such a direct and charming way and afterwards they're they're just so happy what they what he's done for them and how much he helped them that they invite him over to the farm whenever he wants to come along He's more than, he's, he's always welcome basically, um, which comes back later in the film as well. But it's just such an endearing scene and it shows you right off the bat, right from the get-go of the film, what type of character that he really is. 
it was so first of all the scene was funny but it also showed you a lot about his character he wasn't a cold person he wasn't a psychopath or, or anything um, I mean it turns out later that he's really good with a gun and stuff I mean he was in the military service right but he's really good with math he's really good with numbers you know when when he starts figuring out the financial problem he's just writing all over the wall and he's putting everything together and he's like this is what it is and it's really really fascinating to see him do that and he does it in such a in such a charming way also when he enters the the company um when he goes into living robotics and he meets anna kendrick's character and she's trying to like have lunch with him and he's just like no i'm not having that and you can kind of tell that he he wants to talk to her but he's he doesn't know how and he's a bit weird about it and it's just it's so endearing to see that he's trying but it's not easy for him because he's a bit different i mean it's not easy for anyone but it, it was just really really lovely to to see so i really liked that about the film i liked everything that affleck did with the character um it feels very realistic and he's done it in such a way that it's it's entertaining and fascinating i wanted to see more of him i wanted to see him in different environments and and how he would react and later on uh, obviously it turns into a bit of an action film as well um, as you've seen in the trailer but it's just a really nice portrayal of of someone who lives with autism and how that person managed to turn something that we consider a disability into a strength and into a really interesting and fascinating character now the downside of the film for me was the disjointed narrative. I already mentioned the stuff, uh, everything with J.K. Simmons. Um, basically, you should have cut out, unfortunately, because it feels like it's basically part of a different film. There is stuff that happens in flashbacks. There is a really long explanation sequence later on where they're the script is just trying to like put everything together and tie a nice little bow neatly around everything but it's just it kills the flow and it kills the film and it it just doesn't gel really well unfortunately and i wish they would have just cut it out but i think they were afraid that the film then wouldn't make a lot of sense i think it still would have um everything connects together but a lot of the puzzle pieces they just they feel like they're forced and, and some of them even unnecessary. So it's a rather predictable plot. I mean, there were one or two things in there I didn't see coming, and one of those was so well done. It's near the end, and I can't talk about it in more depth because that'd be a huge-ass spoiler. But it turned into my favorite scene of the entire film. It's near the end where two characters meet in a living room. If you watch the film, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, where two people um, have a heart-to-heart -heart in a living room. Uh, people you don't really expect to have a heart-to-heart. -heart. And it, it was one of the things that I, I was like, I wonder if this is, you know, what, if this dynamic, this relationship between these two characters is going to be, is going to be happening in the film or not. And I was really happy to see that it actually did. So I don't really want to put it down as predictable because I, while I did have this theory for half the film I wasn't really sure I thought it was a bit outlandish 
But considering that the film connects literally, and I shit you not, everything together, there's not anything happening in the film that doesn't connect to something else, which is a bit weird. But I really like that scene at the end. It it made like it, it put a smile on my face because first of all, the two actors in it are fucking fantastic. Affleck's one of them, and just the way that it's staged and what happens and how it's done and that's kind of the end for the f uh, of the film for me. But then obviously there's other stuff that happens later, which is some of the tacked on stuff that kind of almost ruins the ending for me. But overall, I thought it was a really entertaining film. I did enjoy it from, from start to finish. There are some things that happen there where you're like, oh my God, you've got to be kidding me. Seriously, did we have to do this here? But overall, I thought it was very well done. And I liked the performances. Most of them are not really worth mentioning, but I thought Affleck did really well portraying someone who, who lives with autism. And he did it in a very, very interesting way. And just for that alone, I think if, if you like Ben Affleck, I think you should go and watch this film. It's really good. Um, I did enjoy it. The plot itself is, is nothing you haven't seen before. But I think it's Affleck's um, performance by itself is already worthwhile. So go and check it out. If, if you want to watch, you know, a decent flick, go and see it. If you don't like Affleck, you won't like this film because it literally, it sings or swims with him. So don't worry about it. But I found him absolutely fascinating. I love his high intellect and his social awkwardness and how he still just wanted to connect people and cared about people even though he knew like his, his logical mind was telling him he shouldn't do this. Overall, because especially in the second half, it, it's quite action-y and he's quite a bit of an yeah, action hero. Some of the stuff that he does, it's like, you know, Matt Damon has the Bourne Identity or, or the Bourne series. Maybe this is, you know, Affleck's account, accountant series. Um, I wouldn't mind watching a second film with this character. He was really very, very interesting. So go out um, and see the accountant. I think you won't regret it. Now, the second film, <laughs> my absolute highlight this week, is Nocturnal Animals. Now, before I get into in, in, in depth about what's happening here, this is a very cerebral film. It's really, really weird. There's there's so much happening on so many different layers. It's it's kind of mind blowing. But what the the first thing that really stood out to me was the beautiful cinematography. This film, even in its gruesome scenes later on, it's just shot in such a beautiful way. It's it's really weird. I, <laughs> there are scenes happening later that kind of blew my mind because you're looking at you know imagine you're looking at a dead body which in itself is kind of a horrific scene because someone is dead but it's lit in such a beautiful way and the colors and the framing and just just everything the music in addition to that as well and it's just so so beautiful but you're looking at death that's kind of what what this film is about it's, it's the juxtaposition of, of life and death and of beauty and ugliness and how uh, physical uh, or something we perceive as physically ugly doesn't have to be ugly. Maybe someone who looks really handsome or beautiful is really, really ugly. And it's, it's just all these 
preconceived notions that we have, all these judgments that we have, it's turning it upside down and inside out. And I really like that about a film. So we, we start, the, the film starts in a really weird way. I was like, what the hell am I watching? It's like, it starts with, um, with, an, art, um, with an art piece. Amy Adams plays an artist, um, and one of her one of her um, um, her gallery opening or whatever, she she has a lot of naked people. I think it's only naked women though. Yeah, that was a bit weird. Why were there no naked men? Maybe there were, and I just don't remember. But something that to a lot of people and myself included at first, I was like, wow, this is really grotesque. Um, it's people that are obese. They're all naked and they're flaunting themselves in front of the camera. And it's like, what, what is this? What is this? And the resolution is that you're at a, an art gallery and you find people with in naked bodies in all kinds of shapes and sizes. Well, actually, no, all, only in obese sizes. Um, in, in, in all kinds of um, positions decorated around the, gal uh, the gallery. Not entirely sure what that was supposed to say, to say, but like every art piece that is, you know, it's very subjective. I know that that really annoyed people, shocked people, disgusted people. Some people were, were having a bit of an outcry about it, going like, this, this is gratuitous, it's, it's fat shaming and all of that stuff. And I, I didn't really think it was because it was shot in such a beautiful way. Was it supposed to be shocking? Of course it was supposed to be shocking. A lot of art is supposed to be shocking. That's what art is. It's supposed to wake you up, shock you and get your attention. Did it do that? Fuck yeah. Did I think what I was seeing was disgusting? No. It was something that I don't usually look at. It is something that I probably would a bird looking at and just because I was sitting in this cinema and there was this ginormous screen in front of me and I was seeing heavily obese women dancing around naked I had to watch it and after a few seconds I was like you know what it's actually kind of beautiful because of the way it was shot and the the coloring of it and it was just it, it's it's kind of putting you in the mindset of this film is going to show you some really beautiful shots of really grotesque stuff or is it a grotesque shot of some really beautiful stuff you know it's really working with like with your judgment and how you see things and your point of view and all of that and the film later on definitely kept doing that and i think that starting sequence is kind of putting you in the right mindset to even be able to maybe to stomach the film and to be ready to to receive the film and what it's trying to tell you because this is a film it's very artsy it's very gruesome it's very very different and that's one of the reasons I loved about it I mean you have brilliant performances you know by Amy Adams and Jake Gyllenhaal and uh, Michael Shannon I mean, everyone is great in this film, but those three, fantastic. Um, the editing is brilliant as well. The way they seamlessly go from one scene to the next. And it takes you a few seconds to realize that you are now somewhere entirely different. 
Uh, it is just absolutely fantastic, seamlessly transitioning between seem between totally unrelated scenes, basically. It was great. The narrative is a bit is a bit episodic. You know, you you basically have um, oh yeah, sorry, um, you have Amy Adams. Um, she is uh, an artist. It sounds like she's a very very successful artist, even though she has money problems. Her and her husband are having money problems. She definitely is a very rich person. And after that gallery opening, there is a manuscript that lands on her doorstep by someone called Edward. Turns out Edward used to be her but former husband. I'm not sure if they were married, but definitely former boyfriend. Like her former really important uh, partner. And during the film, the entire film is about Amy Adams. It's almost like the never-ending story, but for adults. So you have Amy Adams reading the script that, or, or the book that Edward sent her. And you see it acted out on screen. So it is literally like the never-ending story. You have the little kid reading it. And then you see what he's reading about. And the film is from the get-go really heavily insinuating that there are parallels between Amy Adams's real life and what she's reading about in the book. Just the way it's edited together, how everything is transitioning between one thing and the next. But it's just that the whole film is really, really disturbing. All the stuff that you see there and you reach a certain point in the narrative of the book where it gets really disturbing and you have Amy Adams as the external reader put down the book because she can't deal with it anymore. And that works really well because you as the audience, you're kind of like, oh, I can't deal with this anymore either. I would put the fucking book down now. And then stuff happens in her real life and then she goes back to the book. And the way it's done is just fantastic. And, and all the stuff that happens in the book, I don't want to give too much away, but there's some really gruesome stuff happening there. It's about a man who is on a road trip with his wife and his daughter and they basically get hijacked by a couple of guys um, sorry, several guys and it does not go very well and there's some horrible things happening there disturbing things and you can tell that this is where it's going but that doesn't make it any less disturbing it is just so powerful and. The, the, the way the narrative is framed between Amy Adams and her real life and the book, what she's reading and what we're seeing happening there and you kind of understanding that this guy, the, the dad in the book, is probably Edward who wrote the book, who sent it to, to oh yeah, Amy Adams' name is Susan, I just remember that, who sent it to Susan and has dedicated it to Susan and the book is called Nocturnal Animals. And he called her, he used to call her a nocturnal animal because she just, she was having a hard time sleeping and she was always awake at night and just doing things. And it's, it's almost like you left me and that finally enabled me to write a book because he's been trying to be a writer for years and he just couldn't do it. And then something happened, which you find out throughout the film. And all of a sudden, you know, th this whole thing is like when horrible things happen to you, when you're in pain, that's when you are creative because creativity comes from pain. That's what a lot of people say. So you, you have this whole thing of this guy having written this book and sending it to his ex 
who kind of enabled him to do it, to, to write it in the first place. And now her reading it live while you're watching the film and having the events of the book unfold as you have the events in Susan's life unfold as well. And that makes for such fascinating and interesting viewing of this film, which in addition to, to all of that, like the narrative is great, the performances are great, the, the cinematography, the editing, the mute, the score is, is fantastic. It is just so haunting and disturbing and beautiful and and fascinating and you it, it's like a the most beautiful train wreck you've ever seen and you can't look away and you are appalled and disgusted and disturbed at the same time as you go wow that looks kind of really beautiful and i can't look away it's this whole juxtaposition that is going throughout the entirety of the film where you are equally fascinated and enthralled as you are disgusted and disturbed by what you are seeing and experiencing and that's basically what nocturnal animals is it's an experience it's it's definitely an art film it's it's a piece of art in itself the ending is from my point of view very open to interpretation a lot of people don't like such things they want answers i love it when things are open to interpretation depending on how the film has been has been made has been done like if the narrative actually works with an open end i'm more than happy to have an open end i love having discussions about films like that where it's like well how did you see that well how do you understand the film what did you get out of it and just like any piece of art that you look at that you experience you will get something entirely different out of it than someone else because whatever you bring with you will influence what you take out of the piece of art that you've just experienced and I find that really fascinating. And this film, I watched it. And after we were done, I was, I was just like, wow, that was one hell of a thing. And I was just, we were just looking at each other and we were just, wow, what did we just see? This is like one of the, the top films of the year. And my mate was like, good Lord, yeah. I was like, fascinating. I'm just like, I kind of want to watch it again. It was, it was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. It's so beautifully done. This is one of the most perfect films that I have seen in a long, long time. You know, it, like I said, it's haunting, it's beautiful, it's disgusting, it's, it's, it's just, it's fascinating and enthralling and all, everything at once. It, it's, it's crazy. Um, I've heard that, you know, a lot of people, well, when I say a lot of people, I've seen it on Twitter is what I'm saying. They brought up that the film doesn't pass the Bechdel test and the, the fat shaming I mentioned uh, in the beginning um, that women are naked is gratuitous and women are raped and and I mean I'm a woman and I really don't like seeing such things but the way the film handled it I thought was really well done I mean in regards to the Bechdel test I'm not surprised it doesn't pass a Bechdel test because this film is about a female male couple and their relationship. So I don't need every film to pass the Bechdel test. I mean, it would be great, don't get me wrong. But that didn't bother me because it was just as much about the women in this film as it was about the men. At least for me. I mean, if you disagree, that's fine. Let me know what you think. Definitely. I want to. I want to hear from other people who've seen this film. I thought it was absolutely fascinating. I didn't think that the 
the the especially the the rape scene I think was the the most disturbing scene that I've seen in the film. Uh, the way it was done here in the film, I thought it was shot beautifully, and I know that sounds horrible considering what the content of the scene is. But you you don't first of all you don't see the the rape itself. You see the end result. You see the naked women. They they are not mutilated or bloody. You only see that later once the on closer inspection um, you see that the mother's head was bashed in but they have to move her hair to see that so you look at them at first and they look peaceful almost and, and beautiful the only way that you actually do see the rape scene is when the father has a nightmare imagining what it because he didn't experience this he was uh, separated from his wife and his daughter and then they were raped and killed. And when we actually do see the rape scene, it's in his dream sequence. And it's in a very... It's shot in a very blurry way. In a very bizarre, over-the-top way. And it was not about... It was not about the rape. It was more about the father's nightmare of... It wasn't... I don't know. I didn't, I didn't really see the, the sequences as overly sexual or something you you of course definitely understood what what the scene was about but you saw the girl and you saw the guy and the the guy was was the, the emphasis was was on the guy and him making like weird faces and basically sh looking like the devil because one of the worst things that i think a father can imagine happening to his daughter and his wife but especially to his daughter is having having her raped and, and killed and this actually happened to his daughter and his mind trying to make sense of that and, and and digesting that that's why that scene is in the film i'm i'm giving kudos to this film because you don't actually see the rape happening um in in the narrative it's only in in a short dream sequence the father has and he wakes up from a nightmare be because of that and the way it was shot and the way it was done and the way it's inserted into the narrative in the film I think works really really well and is in no way exploitative or gratuitous um, so I don't understand why, why people think that I mean everyone's entitled to their opinion but I didn't think that it was it was done in any way shape or form like that it wasn't gratuitous at all the same with the naked women at the start, you know, I, I thought it was it was more celebrated as a piece of art, as I mentioned earlier, you know. I don't think it was fat shaming at all. Maybe you're bringing that to it, just like you're bringing all of your experience to it, to any art. So maybe that's, that's what it is. Um, I didn't think it was fat shaming, I didn't think the rape scene was gratuitous or or unnecessary or whatever. I, I thought it was it was really well done. I thought the film was fantastic. I've seen that some ladies on Twitter are having problems with didn't pass the Bechdel test, um, the fat shaming or what they perceive as fat shaming at the start and then of course the rape sequence but to me it was none of that um, and that obviously depends on your point of view. If, if you saw it in, in such a negative light, then you know that's your opinion and you're entitled to it. I think the film was done in a really, really well done way. I, I think it's one of the most well done films I've seen in a long time. From start to finish, it's a piece of art. 
It is fascinating in how beautiful and grotesque it is at the same time. It is a juxtaposition from start to finish and it lets you go through it, like it takes you on a ride with it and, and has you experience something. You're experiencing this with Amy Adams. She is like the perfect avatar for the audience. When she starts reading the book, you're reading the book. When she's experiencing whatever happens in the book, you're experiencing whatever happens in the book. And it works really, really well and it's very powerful. And what you find out by the end of the film, not just about the book, but also about Amy Adams and everyone in her life, I mean, some things are very predictable, but the way they work in the narrative of the film are just fantastic. I really enjoyed it. The performances are great. Obviously, if you if you don't like Amy Adams or, or Jake Gyllenhaal, maybe you're going to have some problem following that because they are definitely the people that you have to be able to sympathize with. But I really loved it. It's one of my favorite films this year. It knocked it out of the ballpark. Immediately after I've seen it, I was like, wow. Literally just wow. That's how amazing it was. So if you get a chance to see Nocturnal Animals, go and see it. It's definitely worthwhile to see this in the cinema because the cinematography is fantastic. The score is fantastic. And I think a lot of the a lot of the scenes and, and, and the cinematography and, and everything that it depicts it's just so powerful that you need to see it on a big screen. You need to literally be enveloped in it because it is such a powerful experience. It's not always a feel-good experience, quite the opposite, but it's, it's like you have to go through that. You, you, you feel what Amy Adams feels. Like I really had a connection with her while I was watching this film because we were both reading this book and having our reactions to what we were. She was reading it, I was seeing it. You know, it is really powerful and superb and I absolutely loved it. And I think you might not love it, but I think you'll like it and I think you will appreciate it. So go and see it. All right. So that's it for the Weekly Watch this week. Next week, I'll have another Amy Adams film on the program uh, because Arrival is finally out here in the UK. Uh, I have been waiting to see this for months. I'm really excited about it. I've heard a lot of good things about it trying not to get my hopes up too much um you know expectations too high and all that jazz and just to juxtapose that i'm also watching american pastoral which apparently is really really shit i've heard a lot of negativity about that i'm watching it because i know it's um ewan mcgregor's new baby um and i want to watch everything that comes out so there you go and fantastic beasts isn't out yet until next week so um that's what it is arrival and american pastoral so you can uh, get in contact with me at weeklywatchcast, or one word, weeklywatchcast, at gmail.com. Let me know what you think of the accountant, what you think of nocturnal animals, especially nocturnal animals. I really want to know what people think. And yeah, let me know what, what films you've been watching, what TVs, TV shows you've been watching. What do you think of Westworld? What are your crazy theories? Let me know. Um, well, until next week, with the arrival, I bid you all farewell. Bye.